Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an episode-by-episode discussion of a beloved animated series. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese cartoons we love so much. I am your co-host, Noah Carden, and joining me, like always, is... Aaron J. Shelton. And today, we are continuing our, our deep dive into Cowboy Bebop with session number nine, Jamming with Edward. The synopsis for this episode is that something is carving giant pictures on the Earth's surface, and the police put out a bounty for whoever is doing it, probably a hacker, uh, thus drawing in the bebop. Uh, A talented computer hacker named Radical Edward is rumored to be the culprit, but it's actually the work of an abandoned AI in a spy satellite. Ed agrees to help the crew retrieve the AI in exchange for letting them become a member of the bebop. This episode was written by Dai Sato, one of the standout names on the, the series production, um, and directed by Ikuro Sato. Uh, I don't believe there's a relation there. The episode name, Jamming with Edward, comes from a an album of the same name that was mainly jam sessions uh, from the Rolling Stones while Keith Richards was out of the studio. There apparently, there's a couple different rumors of like why he was out of the studio. There's apparently like some fights or he was going to go see like a girlfriend or something like that. But um, the people on the album are Mick Jagger, Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, and then they're joined by Nicky Hopkins and Rye Cooter. The Edward of the title is actually a nickname for Nicky Hopkins. The album is only six tracks. And like I said, they're mostly just kind of like little jam sessions, just things that they were doing while they were recording uh, Let It Bleed. I listened to a little bit of it. And if you like people jamming, <laughs> then, then <laughs> like, I, I think we can kick out. I'm not a Rolling, I'm not like a Rolling Stones fan. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I'm I, like, I have nothing against the Rolling Stones, but they're not really of my era, I think. Would be a, an easy way to say it. I, I think that's it. I, I I would say I'm probably more familiar with like the tongue out logo than, yeah. than any of their music. Yeah, exactly. Going through the wiki entry, this one was one of my favorites. Quote, Edward reveals her full name to the satellite as Edward Wang Hao Pepelu Sabolski IV. A hint at just how eccentric she is. <laughs> End quote. Yeah. Uh... I just sure I, the wiki's look. I feel like at some point the wiki's gonna come back and like roast us and and get back at us somehow for, for I, calling them out here and there. And then like that's just fun. It's very encyclopedia for sure. Yeah, I think actually in the show, at least in the English dub, uh, they actually change the name a little bit. I don't know if it's just like a a a localization or if there's actually like some changes between like the initial um the 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 pre-production versions of some of the character names and the post-production version because in english it's edward wong how pepelu tivruski the fourth so i again i just like copy pasted that from the wiki Mm -hmm. and i i didn't write down exactly the full name in my episode so Wang Wong, uh, again, it's a wiki, so could be very misspelled. Yeah. More of a phonetic uh, spelling. Okay. Of some of it, perhaps. The sort of um, Japanese speaking uh, a different language kind of version. I think like it's a um, Romaji version where it's 
uh, like you said, phonetic versions of a, a foreign language. It's it's made up. So I'm going <laughs> to say we're both right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. So Edward, Edward has introduced this episode. Yeah, I we gushed about it a little bit last time, but I think we're both really big fans of Ed. And like right at the top, I kind of want to say like, I'll ask you why. Why do we? Why the love for Ed? Why do we love Ed so much? I think Ed is just such an eccentric part of the the core cast. Like Spike and Faye and Jet, for the most part, are fairly serious, or at least serious to a degree most of the time. If there's any sort of like comedic parts of it, it's sort of um, sort of circumstance, I guess. They're like, not causing it. They're the victims of it. Yeah, yeah. They're they're the straight man in in the joke. While Ed Ed is like actively the joke. She is doing all sorts of weird noodly arm motions. She's got this kind of very interesting way of talking. This very sort of sing song, rhymy, like vernacular. And she's just like so happy and upbeat, like ninety nine percent of the time. That it's it's those little bits of like fresh air in like an otherwise like super serious episode. Yes, she brings much needed levity to everything. And it's Mm -hmm. also uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia had a big episode about this. That was, you know, a kind of a joke, but also real as far as like group dynamics in in storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, there's always four. There's the brains, the face, the muscle and the wild card. Ed sort of completes a uh, a foursome where you thought it was a trio, where, you know, it's like you didn't know this was a foursome until Ed arrived. I'm like, OK, now it's the gang's all here now. Yeah. And I think Ed wouldn't be the character she is if it wasn't for one of our favorite people on the show, Yoko Kano. <laughs> um, she is has been reported to be a very big influence on uh, how Ed's character kind of came out that uh Kano's like kind of weird cat-like kind of uh, behavior rubbed off on like Watanabe and the crew when they were kind of coming up with all the characters or as they were working through the series. It added like that little extra spark into the show, I think. Yeah, I think the Japanese subtitled version uh, has that comes across a bit more. I don't get the sing-songiness that the English dub gets. Uh, but there's like, Ed will, you know, repeat words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, uh, when she's trying to find the access codes to the satellite, you know, she there's a song. If I, Or in the English version, I remember, like, she sings a song uh, and does, you know, a little rhyme. Mm-hmm. Watching it over twice, it didn't feel songy. It was very cutesy. But, like, I tried to listen out for, like, a rhyme or anything. But, like, the cat, like, sort of maneuvering feels feels like it's more in the it, i got a sense of that more in the japanese subtitled version did i talk about ed's uh voice actresses you have not <laughs> okay well uh edward's voice actresses uh in the japanese it is aoi tada aoi i believe at the time of recording she was only about like 14 or 15 when she came into to, to voice ed her english voice actress is melissa fawn uh who you might recognize from shows like invader zim where she's gaz 
who's Dib's sister. Um, oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. She also voiced uh, Nina Mori and FLCL. And she also voices some of the Tachikoma in the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. So there's an alternate universe where mm-hmm. Ed became a spider robot that caused yes. mischief. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, Melissa Font actually has like a very, I think she, she really nails that sort of innocent kind of child voice that you, you know, a lot of um, women voice actors uh, tend to end up playing. Um, both little boys and little girls, but I think Mosafon really kind of nails that that entire like spectrum of of those kind of roles, uh, and the Tachikomas with their sort of innocent nature, they really kind of need that uh, to kind of contrast with their the fact that they're giant spider robot tanks. <laughs> yeah, I I am a wee bit jealous that I don't that I'm on the on the subtitle to I don't get to hear I don't get to hear as much Ed. Noah, did you were we're we're around the same age? Did you want to be a hacker at any point, or did you look at like the idea of a hacker in the late '90s and early 2000s and think, "Yes, that's cool. How do I do that?" I think I always thought it was cool, but I don't really. I never. I don't think I ever really had a a desire to do it because I think I knew at the time that it was also going to be like a lot of math. <laughs> and I was math was never my favorite subject in well, school. So I say that to say that I think that's part of to, for me at least. That's part of the appeal of Ed. It's like, oh, you're a cool hacker in a in the in this time period where the internet is still for the for the general population is still very new. Mm-hmm. And you know, where we don't quite know how it works. We just know yeah. it does. And so it's, like be, that seemed like oh that's that's something interesting and outside the box and I'm like oh that's I just thought it was very cool that Ed was a hacker yeah definitely like and I think the hacking in Cowboy Bebop leads a lot into that sort of late 80s through the 90s kind of perception of both like the internet and hacking where or like that that perception of what the future of the internet and hacking is going to be where you're you know you're jacking into cyberspace and you're floating through it's all virtual reality and and all this craziness or that the internet was still going to be this non-ubiquitous thing yeah like it was still going to remain this like domain that only you know the the leadest spelled with two threes uh were were going to enter yeah exactly um so one thing i actually noticed about the the internet in cowboy bebop in this episode um is that it's actually called the Outer Net. What? When Ed is logging into, I believe it's the um, the ship tracking, like, web page thing towards the start of the episode to find where the Bebop is at, it actually says along the edges of the frame, Outer Net. So that... the, the internet in Cowboy Bebop is actually the Outer Net. And it's, I guess it's all across the solar system? From a taxonomy standpoint, that makes... A lot of sense, though. Yeah. To, to change the name up. Yeah, definitely. Also, another thing I noticed on that, when she finds the Bebop, it's registered as, like, a vacation vessel. Is it? I, I, I paused that frame, too. I, I only saw that, oh, it's nice that they recognized Ein as a crew member. <laughs> it was, like, crew three plus one, and Ein's the plus one, I suppose. Unless Faye is. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how Jet... 
you know, <laughs> typed with the manifest. Yeah, I think I think that might be the the thought process there with Jet. But uh, uh, a vacation vessel. Yeah, so it lists a bunch of different ships, which there's some in there that are just like Thomas Wayne or like Predator or like a bunch of other like weird names for for <laughs> spaceships. Which I mean, you know, if you have a spaceship, why not name it something kind of weird like that? Yeah. Um, but a bunch of them are named like business or. Um, it's like business or professional and things like that. And then the Bebop just has vacation on it. And it's like, so it's like a cruise ship. That's how they get around. Like what? So the, if you know me personally, you'll, you'll know all the people involved. But the first time I crossed the Canadian board, it was, it was semi for business. Mm -hmm. Um, But the people I were with were like, we're just going up to see some friends. Like, Okay, and this is again, this is my first time crossing any sort of international border, so I just go along with it. Right. And then after we got, I mean, we got through fine. It's not, it wasn't a big deal. It's the Canadian border. Um, <laughs> and after I get through, I'm like, why don't we tell them what we were really doing? They're like, ah, I just don't want them to know my business. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that's a, that's a, uh, that might be why the vacation thing, like, ah, you don't need to know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I mean, if there's any like bounties on Earth that were able of like logging into the same system, if you saw a thing that just said in there like bounty hunting or something like that, you might want to like keep an eye on it or want to know where they're going to yeah. be at. So, fair. Yeah. I, you got to, again, no one should know your business. <laughs> exactly. I think sort of my last big thought was Ed. And it's because there's not like Ed is, as Ed says, Ed is Ed, mm-hmm. right? As of right now, I don't think there's a ton of like deep meaning to their character. Like, what is the purpose of this character? I think we kind of covered it. It's, you know, comic relief to a degree, some 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 whimsy into the mm-hmm. show. But I yeah. do like how they sort of telegraph it, the change that's going to come as these two parties meet. Because um, when we were first introduced to Ed, they she's outside just listening to a broadcast, sort of, uh, you know, aimlessly VR interneting. Right. And then a giant rocks hit her and she gets blowed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she gets hit by a meteor. Mm -hmm. But is then fine. Impervious, some might say. (laughs) Yes. But after that, we see the Bebop crew. And we're used to them having, you know, some high sci-fi hijinks. Uh, Spike's watching the Swordfish too. Mm -hmm. Jet's just kind of aimlessly watching TV. Jet, or... Faye is, you know, doing her nails. It's mm-hmm. it's a very lazy sort of Sunday vibe. I got to feel like that was intentional to show, like, here's what Ed is going to bring <laughs> into this crew. She's going yes. to flip their world on its head. Yeah, she she brings that little bit of chaos. And I got to say, just watching Spike wash his ship reminds me I need to go wash my car at some point. <laughs> but, eh, you know. But yeah, like Ed, like even the way that Ed is like animated, in the show, she's very noodly, very like, uh, like that's the the word that really comes to mind is noodly. Like her arms just kind of turn into like these big wiggly kind of like tentacles at times. I think and, rubber hose animation is, yeah. is the term from like like older nineteen twenties nineteen thirties sort of cartoon animation. Yeah, totally. Just like that, that's a Jesus Redund- <laughs> redundancy. <laughs> cartoon animation anime Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh but yeah like when she's walking we see her walking at one point in like silhouette 
across like a a sunset and she's just like dancing around and her mouth is like super wide open and like she's got like this little like snake tongue kind of thing happening and she just kind of like dances around with her computer like balanced on her head and and yeah she's just a weird little goofball that fall like <laughs> she doesn't really fall into the bebop life she kind of forces her way into yeah. it, it yeah ed is again the element that we didn't know we needed yeah. in this show i don't think any fan or just anyone who watches the show would like want ed gone or like oh i like everything except ed i have never heard that by yeah. anyone ever it, it's yeah it's the element that it, it, she's a secret sauce in, the, mm-hmm. in this in this whole dish. Yes, totally. So, so in this episode, aside from Ed, we also get a couple of other like just kind of weird characters thrown in there. Um, the one that really stood out to me was Yuri Kellerman who uh, in the, the English dub, he has sort of a, a Peter Lorre, that yes, master kind of uh, performance to, to his character. Uh, Yuri Kellerman in the show is, he, he talks about how he's a psychic and he's a master of like paranormal, like sciences and stuff like that. Um, and he's obviously based on the noted uh, illusionist and self-proclaimed psychic Uri Geller, so, so Uri Geller is he's a, a Israeli British uh, performer um, who is noted for like spoon bending with his mind and doing like magic tricks and things like that that simulate like telepathy and telekinesis things like that. Uri Geller actually, uh, I think it's I don't know if it's ever actually been settled or not, but he he sued Nintendo. For like 60 million pounds in 2000 over uh, the Pokemon Kadabra. <laughs> because in Japan, though, the Pokemon is known as Jung Geller, which mm. has a Yuri Geller, you get it. Um, and it's noted for having, for holding spoons that it bends with its psychic abilities and everything. See, I was about to say, I'm like, really? He's trying, he's. He's trying to pop it because of the spoon bending thing. I didn't realize the name changed. Yes. The the name in Japan is is yeah. And as of 2020, uh because of the ongoing litigation or the fact that they've never really come to uh an understanding, Kadabra has not appeared in like the Pokémon trading card game since 2003. Wow. Yeah. It's 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 wild. Um, there's some other stuff with Uri Geller. He's apparently had some DMCA issues uh, based off of some like interviews and like debunking uh, videos that have been on TV that are now on YouTube, stuff like that. But but yeah, that's just kind of the 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 main thing I thought was really interesting. There's this this weird, I guess, especially like in the the mid to late '90s. There's a little bit of like a, a cultural awareness in Japan of this like self-proclaimed psychic. Yeah. It's just a, a weird little, little, little history tidbit there for you. 
I know it was before his time, but the Yuri Kellerman character also resembles uh, Giorgio A. Tsoukalos. Uh, the uh, you might know that person from uh, Ancient Aliens as in through the memes. Yes, of saying it was aliens, and uh, I'm like, kind of kind of wild hair. Both claiming mm-hmm. that certain acts were the were made by aliens. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. Maybe Giorgio stole stole a little bit of the shtick from this character. I guess that that kind of all ties into one of the the big visual things in this episode, and that's the Nazca lines, which the whole "it was aliens" is a very popular uh, theory about how how and why the Nazca lines were engraved, carved. And you and you're referencing about. within the episode the uh, the. The drawings that MPU makes. Yeah. MPU's, the, MPU's the name of the AI. Sorry, yes. I forgot that in the recap. <laughs> uh, MPU is the name that Ed gives the AI. I think the AI accepts it. Yes, very much so. It, it definitely seems to. But yeah, so the, the AI in the, the spy satellite um, uses a bunch of like floating laser platforms to like carve uh, recreations of the Nazca lines onto the planet, onto Earth, which has uh, been devastated by the gate accident that we, we've we kind of learned about throughout the show so far. Um, but the the Nazca lines originally were um, they're super large geoliths in the Nazca Desert in Peru. And there's a whole bunch of theories about how and why they were built. As with a lot of um, large creations uh, in... I'm just going to be blunt in non-white parts of the world. There's a lot of theorizing that they're made by like ancient astronauts or um, alien visitors or for that purpose when, you know, it could just be, you know, people like to build things all over the world throughout time. So a bunch of people in Peru going out and carving gigantic animals, even if they couldn't really see them or if they can only see them from certain vantage points and things like that, isn't that big of a stretch. I was going to mention it a little bit later in the movie recommendations, but like going through this episode and looking things up, I realized that a lot of conspiracy is like just poo-pooing on human beings. Yeah. Of like, you know what? We are really dumb. There's no way we could have done this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to, I think um, I've, I've long held this belief that like, People have been people for, you know, 12,000 or more years at this point. And we, it's not like there's been that big of a change in like our mental capacities. So we could totally figure out how to build pyramids, how to carve gigantic geometric shapes into the ground, how to mount big old statue heads on an island like People will find a way to do things, and I think discrediting them to to alien visitors is just kind of, not only is it kind of, you know, racist, it's also just disingenuous to humanity. Like, you're, you're really cutting the human race short on the things that we can do. And yeah, we, we, did a, we did a lot of horrible things, but we also did mm-hmm. a lot of cool things. Yeah, totally. Uh, Sukalos and, and Yuri Geller kind of 
parallels there are, are things that have gone back for decades now when it comes to things like the Nazca lines, which are, uh, they're frankly, they're amazing, especially given the fact that they're, you know, anywhere between like half a kilometer to a kilometer, like long or, or wide. And they're only dug into the ground and maybe about between four to four inches to about a foot deep. Um, most of them are a lot shallower than that, but they've managed to last for like centuries just because of the, the, the environmental, uh, surroundings. The, the Nazca desert is super, super dry. Did you find any of the other, uh, theories as to why they were created aside from uh, the dumb, the dumb alien one? So there are some that are, some people theorize that they are, um, Variations on constellations or uh, inverse of constellations Mm -hmm. where people would look up and instead of looking for certain star patterns, they would look for the large amount of like dark darkness in the sky or in the Milky Way um, and kind of emulate those. The the, like there's not a a surefire uh, theory about why the the Nazca lines were built. A lot of them are a lot of them are just gigantic lines or geometric shapes. Um, the things that we see in this episode are just a few of the actual like I think it's hundreds if not thousands of lines uh, out in the desert. There's about I want to say 70-ish shapes that are actually like animals and um plants and things like that the 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 ones that we see most are or the ones we see most in like popular culture are ones emulating the spider the hummingbird the condor and the monkey Uh, there's Mm -hmm. some that are like a tree uh, a flower things like that yeah before this i didn't know that it wasn't just animals or or depictions of other things i didn't realize they were just all these lines just yeah. everywhere. Uh, it's actually really neat. If you go onto like Google Maps or Google Earth and stuff like that, you can actually go and look at the area. And there's just, like I said, there's just hundreds upon hundreds of just straight lines that go for <laughs> miles uh, across the desert. So speaking of Google Maps and what you can see from space. Um, so at the very end of the episode, and we're skipping a bit, but the very last shot is a, a big smiley face on top of South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of Ed, the sort of like little smiley face that's Ed's motif uh, through her hacking uh, that MPU has drawn, and it's it's very big, and it got me thinking: How large is this space carving? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm no mathematician; uh, I too embedded the math, but. I found some information so we can maybe extrapolate or at least give us the scale. Okay. Or, <laughs> yeah, or at least give us a little bit of scale uh, as to what how big it might be. So, uh, from the last frame, it looks like that it takes up most of Brazil and sort of hits uh, some of the other South American countries. Uh, it's like in the top half of South America. The right. Big, the big chunky part. <laughs> um, so, for reference, Brazil is 3.288 million square miles in area. Um, it is the fifth largest country in the world. So Holy shit. already a, a lot of space, a lot of area. 
but you know we're in space when we see this shot so clearly that's that's just sort of the, the the area that it's covering but how big are those lines um so in doing this i found out that the great wall of china we were all told that oh it's you know the only man-made structure you can see in space that is very wrong <laughs> yes it, it is definitely not uh you need like magnification and it has to be like perfect conditions it's it's not yeah um and here's a here's a little math that someone else did to kind of figure out how big something would need to be in order for you to see it so the naked human eye has an angular resolution of approximately 280 micro radians uh, radians are a unit of measurement for angles um what does that mean i don't know <laughs> but uh but but it'll come into play yeah, and it comes into play in this uh, in this equation. Uh, and so, say we take a structure like the ISS, uh, its target altitude is about 400 kilometers. So, someone used trigonometry to figure out that if an astronaut on the ISS had 20/20 vision, they could potentially detect objects that are 112 meters or greater in all dimensions. So, one tenth of a kilometer, if it's if you know if it's length and width of that you might mm -hmm. be able to see it um but that's like the absolute limit to see uh for reference i guess that would be like to see a pixel of something to, as a comparison it would have to be the 112 meter would be that pixel um so but anything around there is like a speck you know it, it's nothing and then they sort of figured out about uh readability of things so say you're trying to skywrite to someone in the iss like you suck I don't know why. I don't know why we're mad at astronauts. This is. Please don't write you so, astronauts in big letters. That's very <laughs> rude. Um, I don't know why I brought it up. Um, but again, using that same principle, the letters would have to be about two kilometers tall, so a little over a mile, to be legible in good conditions. Again, that's bare minimum. So, <laughs> I want to. But we clearly saw these lines. These these were thick, thick lines. Yeah. Now, Noah, uh, let me ask you this. At the beginning of the episode, uh -huh. right, and the lasers were carving into the Earth, uh -huh. would you say those lasers are destructive in nature? Uh, very much so. They are clearly, like, uh, blowing holes into the, uh, the Earth's surface. <laughs> and so imagine those, but two kilometers wide, at least, <laughs> burning through an area the size of Brazil. Um, I know this is a... That end shot is a fun gag, but, you know, it's her job here to think too hard about things. Uh-huh. Um, I think Ed wanted to leave with a bebop to escape all the war crimes <laughs> that she committed <laughs> by destroying a lot of Brazil. Yeah, like, holy crap. We learn that people live underground now, so mm -hmm. that's a plus. That's like, okay, not as bad still very bad ed yes what are you doing holy i mean that's just and they're like colored in too mm -hmm. so like there's just gigantic swaths of south america that are just blasted wasteland it's just been glassed like <laughs> wow yeah yeah ed, what a monster no ed we defended you the piocos aren't worth it <laughs> I have, I have, ooh, I have info on Piocos. Ooh, do you? I do.
So piokos uh, in the show are these little peeps, I guess you would call them. They're little little baby chick shaped treats. They remind me of like chocolate covered peeps almost. Mm-hmm. That Jet buys and brings back to the ship uh, in exchange for info. Uh, so they are based on a treat called hiyokos. Um, and it's just a brand of sponge cake that is shaped like a little bird. And I guess hiyoko means baby chick. Huh. Um, and I guess hiyokos, the real thing are often mistaken for this Tokyo specialty, um, but it was actually created in Fukuoka, which is like on an entirely different island in Japan. Right. Uh, so I I felt like this was some, if you were Japanese, I feel like you would like kind of give a sly smile, like, oh, I see what they're doing there. Yeah. By saying that this is like a, a, a an earth specialty. <laughs> it's sort of inside gag. That, so now that you mentioned that it's like a... You know, it's the Cowboy Bebop version of like a Hiyoko. It reminds me of like all the times where they have to do like the off-brand McDonald's or Pepsi and things like that in in anime. So they don't have to pay the yeah. licensing rights and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if it's just kind of a a version on that as well. Yeah, Hiyoko's got deep legal pockets. We, <laughs> yes. we can't upset them. Um, yeah, because when I, I saw them, when I was watching this episode and I saw them again... The first thing that came to mind is, um, I think the thing that you kind of referenced is the Tokyo Banana. Okay, um, I'm unaware of this. So Tokyo Bananas are basically um, a, a Japanese Twinkie, almost, uh, where it's a individually wrapped like little sponge cake thing that has a banana, like almost like a banana pudding filling. <gasps> <gasps> I am... <laughs> I I love banana flavored stuff. Yeah, like like an artificial banana flavor. Mm. G- give me the give me those banana runs. Yeah, exactly. Like I I I'm not wild about it, but I do like that artificial banana flavor. But uh, but yeah, Tokyo bananas. That's like that's the thing that I was kind of thinking of. That's like a little sponge cake, like cream filled kind of thing. Like I said, it, it sounds like it's got sort of a banana pudding kind of thing so i feel like i know myself being a, a southern gentleman I, I i assume you as well banana pudding with like some nilla wafers on top is like a traditional treat around here <laughs> so back on the hiyoko i just nothing too major to it i just want to especially point out this nice little bit of visual storytelling uh when jet is walking around trying to get information on edward mm-hmm. uh, it's this it's this very simple montage where we'll see jets armored legs his metal boots his shin guards yes it'll be the shot of him walking then we'll get this sort of interview center framed image of someone Mm -hmm. and they'll say a rumor about edward cut back to jet walking another like straightforward shot in the center with like sort of a fisheye uh perspective and i just i think it was very effective to be like let, let's be in Jet's shoes for a second and kind of get the frustration that he's feeling of, you know what, this is kind of pointless. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why I'm doing this. Uh, I really like the music that plays with this whole scene. Um, the Egg and I is the song. But yeah, I, I this whole scene has really stuck with me from like the first time I ever watched this series. There's just something about it where, like I said, just the the image of his legs moving and then the straight-on interview, which 
I didn't realize up until fairly recently, I think like the last time I watched the show, that um, the first interview with the guy with the sunglasses, the shape there in his sunglasses is just the reflection of Jet. I, I noticed al- that for the first time too. Yes. I was like, wait uh, a I, minute. I always thought it, they were just like little skulls or something like that in his glasses because, you know, earthlings are weird to, to quote Faye for this episode. Um, and so I figured he was just some dude that had like little skull shaped like images on top of his glasses, like some sort of, uh, you know, novelty glasses or something like that. Yeah. All, all these, of you know, again, much like the show, it's Earth is very multicultural. He, yes. he talks to all shapes and sizes. Yeah. And, th- and this is like the first time we really actually get to see Earth in the current era of the show where it's this decimated planet now because of the moon exploding. It's created this gigantic debris field around the earth where like at the start of the episode, we, we see Ed listening to a a weather report air quotes where it's talking about like the rock falls during the day and like the percentage chance of like certain parts of the planet be hit by like meteorites of the moon. People have moved underground. that are still living on earth uh, and things like that. So it's just such a, a an interesting it's an interesting view of what would happen and also kind of a look at like why there's so many people spread out throughout the solar system as opposed to like a lot of people on earth still they don't hit you over the head with it mm-hmm. but the art direction of earth is definitely like everything's very ramshackled and like a shanty town, you know, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's almost uh, it reminded me of District 9, which is, you know, again, modeled after actual South Africa. Yes. Um, yeah. A refugee vibe. Yeah, very much so. It's it's the people that can't afford to leave a place that has been decimated. So they're just trying to make do with their surroundings. It's, you know, it's something that, you know, we, we see all across the earth now. But it's just on a, a much, much larger scale. I mean, yeah, again, aside from the aside from destroying half a continent, uh, <laughs> a very, you know, a very good reason for why wouldn't Ed want to leave Earth? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think going back to Ed for just a moment, I think it's neat the kind of foreshadowing we get when the police arrive to arrest Ed mm. uh, about midway through the episode where we see Ed controlling a RC helicopter version of the Bebop made out of like cardboard and soda bottles. And then almost immediately when the police arrive, she takes over their shuttle and, you know, flies around and crashes it. <laughs> and then at the end of the episode, when Faye tries to get Jet to ditch Edward on the, on the seashore, she just takes over the Bebop and lands it back in place. It's like, no, you're, t- you're taking me no. with you. I owe this. Yes. That's also a quintessential sort of example of like rules of three, especially in comedy where it's like, well, the third thing should be slightly different. So like the first, the first is the model that crashes. The second is the, the cop ship that crashes. Like, no, she, she got, she got it. Yeah. She, she landed it. All right. Yeah, totally. So speaking of the end, I know I'm pretty sure there's a translation difference that might change things up. So at the very end, Spike is lamenting the fact that they've let Edward on board and uh, goes to Jet and says, there are three things I don't like. 
And I believe in your version, it's kids, animals, and women? Or it's, women with bad attitudes? It's kids, animals, and women with attitudes. Okay. So mine changes it a little bit to Rugrats, Beasts, and Tomboys. Huh. Right? That's On that last one, that's a big difference. That's, I mean, I wonder if that's a a cultural understanding of what a tomboy is in Japan or not. Huh. In Japanese, there's plenty of words that, you know, they're loan words, but then they take on sort of their own cultural meaning. And I'm wondering if tomboy in Japan or whatever word that they use that means tomboy kind of has that connotation of a woman with like a, a, a bad attitude or like a, a, Whatever, whatever personality type you want to assign to Faye. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm thinking that might be the same way to it. My it from the English version to this, it does seem like there there's definitely something lost in yeah. the translation uh, on the subtitles. See, now I would have to get like a copy of the script. Yeah, almost. that's the thing, right? Because I I would want to see what the word that he actually uses in the episode and run that through like. Run it through like Google Translate or something like that to get like the literal version of it and then kind of extrapolate from there. Because I'm wondering also, kind of like you're saying, where it's I'm wondering if the tomboy in the English subtitle is just the word that is chose for it. And it may not be 100 percent accurate. So I think this is where we have to look to our audience to if anyone knows. Yeah. If anyone's got at least that word that Spike said. Yeah, we I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. I. I, you know, I have a weeaboo's <laughs> understanding of Japanese, <laughs> which is a few words here and there yeah. that get thrown out a lot and no I real had, understanding. I, I had a real shameful weeb moment. I was at my friend's place watching uh, a WWE pay-per-view, and I think it was for a match with uh, Asuka. Who's mm. a, a you know a wrestler from Japan? Yes, um, she's and great. So, mm-hmm, and whoever she was fighting at the time, uh, and they're at what as wrestling will do before a big match, they'll give you a big recap of the rivalry between the two competitors, and a lot of Asuka's clips are just her yelling "baka baka baka," <laughs> and I was like, "Why is she making a chicken sound?" <laughs> and my friend next to me is just. <laughs> you should know what that means. She's saying idiot, baka. I'm like, oh, I was so used to it just being a word <laughs> and not her saying it in secession. And so, yeah, my she dig it. She she dug into my wallet and took out my weeb card. Yes. Cut off a corner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Had to go take weeb traffic school. <laughs> I mean, her weeks. name, her name is Asuka, too. Like. The, the progenitor of people yeah. <laughs> of, a, of anime characters saying Baka in the Western like zeitgeist is totally going to be Oscar Langley from Ava. Yeah. Like, um. no, I was I was very embarrassed. <laughs> and it, when in normal company, I, I should have been not embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. Damn. So, yeah, maybe I don't know. Do not take me as an authority on anything with with the Japanese language is what I'm saying. Yes. But if you want to let us know what Spike said and even what what it actually means, uh, you can write into us at thinkingtoohardpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at thinkinganime. 
uh, in this episode, we actually get a really, really cool, like, dogfighting. I guess that's probably the best word for it. Um, but, like, a dogfighting scene where it's Spike and Faye have to get to MPU's satellite and download him uh, by flying manually instead of using their computers, which I think this scene is really, really cool, not only before, like, you know, the, the action actually happens in it, but also the fact that I think this is one of the few action scenes throughout this series that doesn't have any backing music. I and noticed I, that as well. It, yeah, it seemed off. I, I just think that's really, really neat. I think kind of, like, in my head at least, there's sort of a oh, we're going to be doing this this you know this job uh, manually. We're not going to have our computers available. So that means all the electronics are going to be off, which means like no music. We got to actually like listen to everything that's going on. We have to be super, super aware. So you as both like the listener or like the, the viewer and the characters in the show, they need like as much silence as possible to be able to like, you know, tell what is going on because they don't have their computers to like help them at all. And we get to see Spike like using some of like the, the pods, like retro rockets to like straighten himself out and things like that. He has to like rewire some of his ship to, to work without his guidance computer and all that stuff. And I think it's just a really, really neat scene. Uh, and the fact that there's no music in it just kind of adds a, also adds like a certain layer of tension to it as well. I think for sure. This this just came to me as as we were talking. It might also. I like your theory. I, I think I would ascribe to that theory. Okay. To where electronics are off, music is music is off as well. It yeah. might be a little bit more of an homage to a movie I'm going to talk a little bit about in the movie section, two thousand one, a space odyssey, because in that film, anytime they are outside the spaceship, there is no sound sort of to simulate the lack of sound in space. Right. And, you know, clearly they didn't go as far as to not have any sound effects. But not having music might have been, like, what they could have gotten away with. I'm curious if they tried to not have sound in space for this scene. And they're like, no, no, please, put, you need the pew-pew-pews. Yeah, you need something going on. Mm-hmm. And music might have been the compromise. But I, yeah. I want to believe it. it was a... It was a choice, you know, it was a, a conscious choice to not yeah. put music in be- for that reason. Yeah, and I, it definitely could be sort of a, a combination of both theories, too, where it's like, you know, we want to make reference to 2001. There's already a few like little nods in this episode, I, I would say. And mm-hmm. then also the sort of tension and sort of I, I it's not quite diegetic, but that sort of semi diegetic. Uh, quality of like you know making sure everybody is is fully aware so they're not going to have backing music for the scene so if you want to sound super smart when discussing Uh film uh noah brought these up in film uh sound and sound effects and music are referenced as either diegetic or non-diegetic diegetic just means that the source of the sound is visible on screen or it's implied so whenever characters speak, uh, sound effects and Foley, uh, music that's like coming from a radio or anything, uh, non-diegetic just means you don't know where the source is. Or, so like uh, voiceover, sound effects that aren't really supposed to be there, and just backing tracks. So I've that, watched yeah. a couple YouTube videos about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I so know some words. 
when you're discussing film with friends, throw that around and well, you either be called a poser or <laughs> you'll sound really impressive. I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> I, Probably I think, both. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, the, the dogfight has my favorite, my absolute favorite thing in like any sort of aerial combat is when the bullets are flying mm. and there are trails and the trail curves. Yes. Oh. So Nothing like a good tracer that has a has an angle on it. Oh, nothing better. Uh, I, just, I don't know it, what it is about it. I just it just feels so just it's, like you're it's there. Good. And it, it's good. It's a it's a really cool effect. I also like the um some of the shots where it's like they have a camera strapped to like the outside of the ship as it's maneuvering and things like that. That's always a really good look. So Ryan Johnson is admittedly a fan of Cowboy Bebop. I did we talk about this in the overview episode? I don't think we ever got to it too much. Uh, I think you may have mentioned like, hey, here's some you know big Hollywood people that have mentioned or like have professed the love of Cowboy Bebop. But I don't know if we've really gone into Ryan Johnson about it. So like I believe uh, so his first feature film Brick is a, is a is a noir story set in a high school. And sort of the main character Joseph Gordon-Levitt's uh, is a little bit based on Spike, especially they both have like the very messy poofy hair top. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and some of this stuff in this scene reminded me a wee bit of uh, that first scene in uh The Last Jedi. Hmm. I, I, there's some, especially when you mention like the camera trap, you know, on top of uh, of a ship, and yeah. you fly around, so the horizon changes. Which is, I mean, it's not a new shot, but like, no, for sure, sh- that dude for sure watches likes Cowboy Bebop, and for oh, yeah, sure totally. steals from it. <laughs> totally, and I think, I think just talking about that particular like style of shot, I think that kind of has its lineage from like you know World War II plane footage to like star wars originally to because they use a lot of the original and and like a new hope and stuff like that they they copied a lot of like world war ii plane footage and things like that for like the attack on the death star and all that yeah and that kind of leads to cowboy bebop which then leads back to star wars i assume it's still up but there's this wonderful kind of web series called everything is a reference or i'm sorry Mm. everything is a remix and like they'll talk about music and they'll talk about like film mm-hmm. and just sort of that's what culture is, uh, yeah. is is us copying from the past, whether we know it or not, or copying a copy of a copy from right. the past. And what I like about that series, too, is it's like part of it is also like this is why we need the public domain. <laughs> so oh, our, so yes. our culture can grow from the past. De- definitely. Like, I think speaking as somebody who tries to run like role-playing games and stuff like that, I'm always trying to be hyper-aware of the stories and tropes I am pulling from for my games just so I don't retread the same stuff over and over again. But at the same time, like, that's kind of... That's kind of all storytelling to a degree, like, exactly like you're saying. So just trying not to make it as blatant as as possible. Trying to put a little bit of subtlety or spin to it. Yeah, or just... or taking from a more obscure source yeah yeah exactly again why i think more live action filmmakers need to steal from anime definitely is like no the a general audience is not going to say oh well that's just this or that's just 
just this. And, and not just for the cool factor, but again, to bring like, you're not only bringing, I'm getting out of soapbox, but whatever. Uh, not just to bring, not just to bring like sort of shots or concepts, but you're also bringing like a different worldview mm-hmm. into, you're bringing an Eastern, in, more of an Eastern influence into the West. Again, like Cowboy Bebop, where it's just a big old remix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like it's it's Watanabe looking at all the sort of both Eastern and Western films and shows from his youth and turning it into a show that was supposed to sell spaceship toys and then became one of like the most critically acclaimed like animated series of like all time. Yeah, look, look, we planned this train of thought out, is what I'll say. <laughs> totally. A hundred percent. If you say we're lying, we'll come and... Well, actually, we won't come, go anywhere no. right now. Uh, we'll pull a Yuri Geller. Yes. We'll bend all your spoons. <laughs> so movie recommendations this week... Uh, we'll talk about one we already mentioned, and then uh, we're going to go on a little bit of a, a cyberpunk <laughs> brief journey. Uh, so as mentioned before, 2001 A Space Odyssey is from 1968. It's directed by Stanley Kubrick and written by Kubrick and written by Arthur C. Clarke. What is the story about? I mean, it's mainly about two astronauts kind of going. It's about two astronauts going to a moon of Jupiter to find some sort of alien artifact uh, but it's about like a lot of stuff. It's definitely one of those important films that you're supposed to see. And I'm making a lot of air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, but where it's like, it's very artsy and that's not always for some people. And I understand yeah. that. So in, instead of saying, Hey, go watch it. I'm like, that's your thing. If, if you're someone who like, just likes film and sort of the spectacle of an effects film, especially this one where the effects are like, again, still hold up insanely well uh you i think you can get some appreciation for it but again not for everyone uh some fun facts some fun real facts and some fun fake facts about 2001 uh so clark actually wrote the novel kind of at the same time as he was writing the screenplay with coop huh um and, and this in the novel just kind of explains things more you get a little bit more for of a reference uh where in the film things are way more implied I see that uh, Kubrick and and Clark were doing the anime thing where they start <laughs> they start the manga and then decide, hey, we're gonna make an anime out of this. And <laughs> in the movie, when they're at the moon base, that's filler. <laughs> uh, but so Clark could catch up. So MPU is a reference to the AI in 2001. HAL 9000. MPU is, I would say, less malicious. Then how, if an AI can be malicious or can it just follow orders is sort of part of the, you know, part of the questioning in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but how is a play on IBM. Uh, they just moved each letter back one to create how. Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a little here's a little Metal Gear fact for you. <laughs> <laughs> Solid Snake's real name is David and Otacon the the nerdy science character you meet in Metal Gear Solid 1, his name is Hal, and they're named after the characters from 2001. Okay, that's right. I can't, a famous quote, I can't do that, Dave. Yes. 
Everyone knows that everyone, you know, everyone knows that quote. That movie from at this point, 50 years ago. Yes, I I have never actually seen 2001. I am only aware of some of the the cultural osmosis of the film. I've never actually sat down to watch it front to back, which I feel like I probably should do eventually. I know, like you said, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. But it, it, it is a long ride. Yes. Um, for sure. But, you know, again, some even just from a technical standpoint, it's it's super impressive. So yeah. impressive that some might say that this was sort of the resume piece that caused NASA to hire Kubrick to direct the moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, going into our conspiracy talk of why, why can't humans just be good at things? Yeah. Why can't we have just done the thing? Why does it have to be a lie? Yeah. But yeah, 2001, if you're if you're in the mood, uh, again, it's especially by today's standards, it is very slow. Um, but uh, but, you know, if you're in the mood, uh, I, I do recommend it now moving to sort of more into the future. Uh, Cowboy <laughs> Bebop definitely I think it's definitely has a cyberpunk influence, especially now with Edward <laughs> coming into the show. Definitely. I, I would say that you can't really do this kind of dirty sci-fi without at least butting up against some cyberpunk themes or aesthetics here and there. But Ed is also a fun character. So I thought, well, let's talk about a fun cyberpunk movie with uh, Johnny Mnemonic from 1995. <laughs> um, there's there's some interesting connections and ideas in it. Uh, obviously, I mean, part of, part of the reason we're talking about this is that there is a very cool scene in the movie where Johnny Mnemonic puts on like little gloves and a in a straight silver visor mm-hmm. to uh, to go online to make a phone call essentially. Yes, like he basically. Liter- <laughs> he literally says, "I'm making a long distance call." Yeah, but it, it but it sh- shows the internet as again as, as sort of as Ed sees it this very 3D VR space where instead of typing in a web page, you're you're moving about in it Mm -hmm. um so this film was directed by robert lango and i believe it's his only feature film credit uh he directed an episode of tales from the crypt and he also did the music video for the one i love by rem oh as we get into it we'll see why he sort of was picked in the beginning uh because the sort of the concept of the movie was different than what it became it is actually written by William Gibson based on a yep. short story of the same name. Uh, Gibson, if you don't know, is considered the father of cyberpunk, uh, especially with his novel Neuromancer. And he describes cyberpunk as a, a combination of low life and high tech. Uh, it's kind of a noir story, but you know, and it deals with the effects of technology, especially when, when you take technology and then like in with capitalism. Yes. And uh, and, you know, class differences. Uh, a famous quote by by Gibson or attributed to Gibson is that the future is already here. It's just not evenly dispersed. Ah. I'm a big Gibson fan. I, I love the, the Sprawl trilogy, which is Neuromancer, Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive, which are all sort of the full length novel follow ups to like giant mnemonic and the other stories in burning chrome. So good. You can correct me because I have only read neuromancer. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, I think we both love the, the, especially the aesthetic, but also just sort of the, the world that, it, that cyberpunk yes. can talk about. So as far as like film and TV, 
he doesn't have a lot of luck in, in this arena. Uh, <laughs> no, he wrote, no, he doesn't. He wrote two episodes of The X-Files. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the only feature film that's been made so far that he uh, has a writing credit for. Um, yeah, there's been a couple attempts to make Neuromancer a film. Uh, the last time I heard anything about it happening was like early 2010s where like Liam Neeson and uh, Mark Wahlberg were attached. Ew. <laughs> yeah, Mark Wahlberg as Case, Case, I think, was the, the casting. Yeah, the he, the the protagonist of Neuromancer. The, you yeah. Know, the, the cool go to the arcade for dates hacker mark (laughs) wahlberg yes the very like explicitly called out to be like 24 years old (laughs) skinny yes but yeah he uh there is a movie that abel ferrara made that was based on a on a a short story called new rose hotel Mm. Uh, it stars christopher walken and willem dafoe i have not uh and abel ferrara directed a bad lieutenant the original bad lieutenant right and uh, King of New York, which are, he's, you know, sort of lesser known director, but very good. I haven't seen New Rose Hotel, but now I'm like, I watched the trailer. And I'm like, oh, I'm very interested in this. I mean, if nothing else, to see Christopher Walken and Willem Dafoe together, oh, right? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and as of this recording, it's free on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Oh, nice. So, so go get it. Um, the movie stars Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, fun fact. This was Dolph Lundgren's last theatrically released film until the 2010s, The Expendables. Hmm. Uh, it has Takeshi Kitano, who was like in every Yakuza movie ever. Uh, I love Takeshi Kitano, also yeah. known as Beat Takeshi. Um, if you are not aware of him from his movie career, which you should really, really solve that issue. Um, if you ever watched the old Spike TV show MXC... That is based off of his uh, game show called Takeshi's Castle. Wow. Yes, it's just a, a redub version of Takeshi's Castle. And it's the the inspiration for like shows like Wipeout, uh, things like that, um, where it's just they get a bunch of people and they throw them into an obstacle course that probably like severely injures them. <laughs> but <laughs> see, but, I I was first introduced to him. As a in as a teacher in Battle Royale, mm-hmm. yes, which he's very good in, and like knowing more of his background, I'm like, oh yeah, I could see in Battle Royale where they picked him because that would be very frightening. Uh, he's for him, uh, as for him to be the teacher. Uh, I know that this film caused him to swear off Hollywood for decades. <laughs> I mean, maybe he should have still done it because of the yes. uh, Ghost of the Shell. <laughs> yeah, that's the next Hollywood film he did was Ghost of the Shell. Oh and- boy. Yeah, there's which, a reason I didn't bring that one up. Which I mean, if you gotta get anybody to play Aramaki in the Ghost of the Shell like live action film, he's probably the best choice. He the, was the best part of the movie. I still haven't seen it, to be honest with you. So the first scene is cool. That's kind of it. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, back back to this fun movie. Um, also, Ice T's in this. And, yes, yes, uh, he is. As lead up like the low techs, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, Dinah Meyer, or Dina Meyer, she's the other love interest in Starship Troopers. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she plays Jane in this? Yeah, I'll go ahead and skip to that part. So, like, in the original short story, Johnny is uh, pr- 
hires a bodyguard named Molly, who's a recurring character mm-hmm. throughout uh, Gibson's work. Um, and she's just like, it's a cool, tough cyber chick. She has like claws in her hands. Yep. Molly uh, Millions. Uh, she's got razor blades in her fingernails and big, shiny chrome lenses over top of her eyes that are like a heads up display. It's, she's she is super super cool and she's one of the main characters in uh neuromancer and mona lisa overdrive so the reason they didn't use her is because molly millions was actually the the rights to that character were actually owned by a different company huh so they sort of did a pastiche of that character in in, in jane where it's like yeah she's a bodyguard but she's doesn't have cool implants yeah uh, which was, again, a, a little bit of a waste. So the plot of Johnny Mnemonic is there. <laughs> so it's set in the distant future of 2021. Uh, <laughs> Keanu plays Johnny, who is a digital courier, which means that he removed parts of his brain to put a hard drive in there so he could move information back and forth, uh, supposedly more secure than the internet. Uh, and he has to get this computer file to a client. The computer file was too big for his head. So it's slowly killing him on top of several different factions wanting the information in his brain. Um, I won't I, I won't say what the MacGuffin is, what it actually is, because mm-hmm. I, I I do. It's a, it's a fun, easy watch, man. Yes, um, it, it totally is. I as kind of goofy and super 90s as it is, it is totally like a fun evening watch. So Longo and Gibson. And here's where I think the problems arise within the film, because it's not good. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I have a feeling of why this is, and this sort of confirmed it for me. Uh, so I guess Longo and Gibson, originally, they wanted this very small, more of an art film. And again, you know, Longo coming from like the music video world, that it makes sense why he's would be the director of it. Right. And, and I guess he ta- said about the project is that they started out wanting to make this film for one and a half million dollars but it became a $30 million movie because we couldn't get a million and a half, um, huh. which, is, which is often the case. A low-budget film is a shaky investment, and on paper, a lot of times it makes more sense to spend more money on the project because if you spend X amount of money, then like, well, then more people will see it and we'll get a higher theatrical release and therefore yeah. we'll make more money back. Um, but yeah, so I think this movie's problem is that too much money was spent into it. Too yeah. too much, but not enough. To like to actually do it justice, you would pro- I, I think you need like more than you either need to go super hard and like, okay, make it 60 million, you know, double, triple that budget. Let's you know, really get into the effects. We can do more with like sort of the implants and sort of the uh the 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 cyber enhancements. Or like they wanted to do, you make it super cheap and you make it a very small personal again a noir story like cyberpunk is yes totally and then if i can be a little self-aggrandizing i have a very small very thin strand of connection to johnny mnemonic okay go ahead there was a video game tie-in for johnny mnemonic it was a full motion video game that was on cd-rom uh now the 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 video for it was shot by a company called Propaganda Films. Uh, they're mainly a commercial house. That's the company that uh, David Fincher worked for before he moved on to the feature film. Um, okay. Some of you may know, I edited a film 
called Feast of the Seven Fishes. And the director of that film worked at Propaganda Films. He never mentioned Johnny Mnemonic. I, I'll need to ask him. Um, but I don't think he worked directly on the Johnny Mnemonic video game. But he did work at the company that the Johnny Mnemonic video game was shot. Oh. That, that, that shot that video game. So again, a very, a very thin six degrees of separation I have to Johnny Mnemonic. Nice. But please check it out. It, it It's fun. Yeah, it's a big, fun, dumb like I said, kind of bad movie, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And like Keanu's performance at places is I, I wanted. Hilarious. So I'm going to drop in this rant <laughs> that Keanu oh. has. Uh, I think you know what I'm talking about. Noah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. You see that city over there? That's where I'm supposed to be. Not down here with the dogs and the garbage and the fucking last month's newspapers blowing back and forth. I've had it with them. I've had it with you. I've had it with all this. I want room service. In the end, just screaming room service <laughs> on the top of a, of a trash heap. Oh, man. It's so good. But yeah, those are, yeah, have some fun. Watch Johnny Mnemonic. Of course, it's available wherever you want to buy stuff. But if you hate capitalism and you don't want to spend money, then Crackle and Pluto TV. As of this recording, it's available for free on there. Nice. Just to kind of tag along with Giant Mnemonic, I would highly recommend reading the Sprawl trilogy. Like I said, Neuromancer, uh, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. They are very good, uh, very good books. I would say if you have Audible, go and get the audiobook versions of them because those are also very well performed. Um, it might be sacrilege to say, but I think I kind of like Count Zero better than Neuromancer, but they're all just fantastic reads. And they're the, the start of Cyberpunk, which, you know, is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot comment on your blasphemy, uh, but I will say that Gibson takes a minute to get into his groove because mm-hmm. he, man, he loves explaining technology and yeah. he loves like luxuriating in, in like sort of the, the minutia of the world. It, I, it's not too much. It's definitely not too much. He definitely yeah. does the right amount. But if you're kind of not, if you're not used to like his patterns, it does take a second to get into, at least yeah. for me. Gibson also ties into a a movie that I hope we'll get a chance to cover, probably the anime movie, uh, Akira, because uh, Gibson has met and hung out with uh, Otomo, the creator of Akira, Ooh. Uh, on multiple occasions. So, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully, if we get around to to Akira, we'll we'll have some more kind of cyberpunk discussions. Yeah, our our three hour episode on Akira. <laughs> We might need to make that like a multi-parter. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. So that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, you can find us, Thinking Too Hard About Anime, the show that you've been listening to, uh, on Twitter at ThinkingAnime. You can write to us at thinkingtoohardpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, Noah, personally... I'm on Twitter at Kamen Otaku. That's K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. Um, you can also check out some other podcasts I'm on, like Role Playing Exchange, 
the Technical Difficulties Gaming Podcast, and uh, I'm also going to be on the Best Pal Brigade Twitch stream, which is also more tabletop role-playing games. Uh, so yeah, you can check me out there. Aaron, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's primarily where I'm hanging out online, at Aaron J. Shelton. If you want to hear me talk more about anime, but in a, in a, in a less... In a less organized and research way, you can go to my other podcast, Kame House Party, where myself and my co-host Vince are going through the entirety of Dragon Ball one episode at a time. Uh, we're both improvisers, and so we add a lot, some might say too much, comedy uh, to, the sh- to, the, to the show. As a totally impartial third party, <laughs> I will say that Kame House Party is a lot of fun to listen to. And a lot of fun to be on. Yeah, mm. totally. <laughs> As you were. Um, so yeah, so that'll do it for this week. Join us again in two weeks for session number 10 of Cowboy Bebop, Ganymede Elegy. I am your co-host, Noah Carden. And I'm your other co-host, Aaron J. Shelton. And we've been thinking too hard. Thank you.